Merry Christmas. As you can see from this video, our culture has made Christmas to be all about whatever we want to make it to be. It's really more about us. And perhaps if I would have a camera and a microphone and walk down these aisles, uh, uh, each of you would probably answer the question, How did, what does Christmas mean to you differently? Uh, I think some of you probably would say it's a stressful time. <laughs> It, it, you, some would say, well, it represents come disappointments and, and anger at the fact that uh, it has become so commercialized that now we begin, shops begin to celebrate Christmas before Halloween. Others would say, well, it represents uh, loneliness, grief, sorrow, sad memories, and depression. That's because we made it all about us. Still others will probably say Christmas represents what really it means, that God came from heaven. God became man. God came to earth. God put on human flesh, that God was born in a manger in order to set us free from sin and guilt, uh, that He died on a cross and rose again to redeem us and to assure us of eternal heaven with Him. The list could go on. But if you even go back to the original cast of characters at the first Christmas, the very first Christmas, and go to Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the Magi's, those astronomers who came all the way from Persia, and you would ask them, they would probably give different accounts even about the first Christmas. I'm sure Mary would have talked about the original puzzlement and, and bewilderment at the fact that she's pregnant and she's never been near a man, and she would probably tell of the enormous relief that she received, the comfort that came from the words of the angel when they told and explained to her the privilege that she's carrying the Son of God supernaturally, miraculously, as a virgin, of how uh, she was favored by God of all the women at that time in Israel. Uh, she is a favorite to carry the Messiah, the anointed Messiah. Uh, she would probably talk about the, her visit with Elizabeth, her cousin, who's the mother of John the Baptist. Uh, she would probably explain in great details about the elation uh, of the visiting of the shepherd and reporting about the angels coming to them and announcing the good news. And she would probably describe in detail uh, the, 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 those, those Persians, those uh, people came from Iran. They, they were scientists, the men of science. They were astronomers. And, and uh, they came loaded with gifts. We only know about three, but they were loaded with gifts. And she would probably say, with tears streaming down her face, about the horrible massacre that Herod the king brought about when he slaughtered all those babies in Bethlehem, and how she and Joseph and the baby Jesus had to make that track across the arduous desert, across the desert all the way to Egypt where they were refugees for a period of time. In fact, historians actually concluded 
that most of the information that Dr. Luke has presented in his gospel according to Luke, most of that information came directly from Mary, the Blessed Virgin. But then if you ask Joseph, Joseph, what does this first Christmas mean to you? Uh, he would probably talk about the extremely painful days, probably so painful you can't, we, we can't imagine, between discovering the days between discovering Mary's pregnancy, inexplicable pregnancy, and the angels appearing to him, uh, explaining the supernatural intervention of God, of how she's born at the whole, that she became uh, bearing the, the Son of God himself. He could probably go into details to talk about the anguish and, and the confusion and the struggles uh, for a few days that he went through. We could never understand that. He would probably talk about the juxtaposition between being absolutely convinced of Mary's purity and how miraculous that pregnancy was. He could probably tell us about tossing and turning and sleepless nights trying to figure out what am I going to say to the town gossips. I come from the Middle East. Every town has professional gossips. <laughs> if you want to get the information, you don't need microphone. You, don't, you just tell them and we'll spread all over town. How is he going to explain that? How is he going to explain that? But no doubt, he would also tell us about the joy of seeing and hearing the angel of God appearing to him directly, trying to explain to him the privilege that he has been given and to take Mary and help her bring up the Son of God. And don't ever forget that back then, back then, Every girl dream, every girl's dream in Israel was to be the mother of the Messiah. Every girl's dream. Because every book of the Old Testament said the Messiah is coming, starting with Genesis 3.15. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. It's in Jeremiah. It's in Isaiah. It's everywhere. So the, those who believed, particularly known as the way, from the days of the prophet Isaiah, every one of those people were thinking, but wouldn't it be wonderful if I would be the one to carry the Messiah? Now, the girls' dreams back then was not to which college to go to and how to get a college degree and get a, a, a career. No, no, no. They wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. So Mary was privileged to be given that incredible, incredible opportunity and the final analysis, the most important person to ask, what does Christmas mean to you, is the one person who's always forgotten. <laughs> always the person, skip. You go to the, see what the angel said to the shepherd. You go in the, the Magi's and you're Mary and Joseph. The one person whose birth it is, the birthday boy, <laughs> we just bypass him. Nobody ever asked Jesus, what do you think? How do you feel about your birth, about Christmas? What it means to you? We know what it means to Mary and to Joseph and to the others. Please don't leave him out. <laughs> He's the most important person at Christmas. Thankfully, 
We don't have to come up with an answer. We don't have to piece pieces together from the Bible and try to come up with an answer of what does Jesus think about Christmas and what does he think about his birth and what does he think about uh, coming to earth. The Bible gives us that answer, and it's found in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 10, verses 5, 6, and 7. In fact, when you have time during the Christmas holiday, read the entire letter to the Hebrews. You'll be blessed. As a matter of fact, in my daily Bible that I read, and so many in the church members will read, we're going through Hebrews right now. And if you don't have your Bible with you, I can understand that because you're probably going out afterward. There are Bibles right in front of you. I want you to grab one. Grab one from the front of you. Grab it. Follow with me. I'm going to tell you which page. So you don't have to flip around and try to fumble around, find out where Hebrews was. Hebrews uh, epistle, particularly those verses found on page 1873. 1873. Jesus here answers the question, what does he think of Christmas? Do you want to know what Jesus thinks of Christmas? I do. He's speaking to the Father, and I'm going to explain to you that this is a, a, a literal prophecy that was prophesied about Jesus 1,000 years before he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And then here, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that he saw that this prophecy was fulfilled in him. You got it? Hebrews 10, verses 5, 6, and 7. Now, Jesus speaking to the Father, he said, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, the writer was telling us, Jesus said, saying to the Father, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. With burnt offering and sin offering, <laughs> you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the Scripture. I have come to do your will, O God. Why did Jesus come from heaven? He says, I came to do what? I came to do what? All right. Now, I'm going to wake you up a little bit here and get you to repeat some stuff after me, okay? But I want to explain to you that this, Christmas this, is, this is the Christmas story according to Jesus. doesn't matter who else says what. This is according to Jesus. And I said before, people skip over that. See, the Word of God, 1,000 years, Psalm 40, says those very words. I came to do your will, O God. His Christmas, his birth, was foretold 1,000 years before he was born. And then many hundred years later came through the prophet Isaiah that he was born with a distinct purpose. Now, my friend, listen to me. None of us, no child ever born and I was, I'm privileged to have 11 grandchildren. None of them are born for a purpose. Hello? You with me? Yes? You with me so far? No one. No one. No one. No one. So repeat it after me. <laughs> now, the parents may have a distinct purpose for their child. Hello. 
when the baby is born, parents have great hopes for that child. They have great anticipation for that child. They want that baby to grow up to do some great things. They want the baby to grow up. Parents, that's, that's natural, and they should be specifically long to see their children uh, serve God in whatever chosen profession, that they would glorify God, that they will do great things or be in science or in medicine or in engineering or whatever it is. They are serving God. Believers serve God above all else in whatever profession they're in. Parents pray that these children will grow up to do great work for God. Children, uh, parents have aspiration for their children. Ah, but Jesus was different. He has a purpose for His birth. Jesus was conscious that His coming is for a purpose. Not the parents, He Himself. And He spells it out here in Hebrews 10. I have come to do your will, O God. I want you to say that with me. I have come to do your will, O God. Now I want you to say it by yourselves. Last Sunday I explained how human nature, the way it is, for thousands of years, the people of Israel, as soon as they came out of the land of slavery of Egypt, gone into the promised land, and God supernaturally delivered them, took them across that highway in the, in the water of the Red Sea, and He delivered them supernaturally. And therefore, He said, you, need, you must remember those days. You must remember those festivals. This is Yom Kippur. This is Passover. Celebrate the goodness of God to you. Celebrate the supernatural work of God in you. But what did they do? They turned these festivals to be about them. Human nature has not changed. Not in thousands of years. What do we do with Christmas? We make it about us. It's not about us. Many people, they get mushy and sentimental around Christmas time. <laughs> but the baby in the manger. But that's where it stays. The celebration becomes about them. It becomes about us, just like the people of Israel. Nothing changed. People run haggard, literally, <laughs> giving each other's gifts and as if it's Christmas is about us, and it is not. Now, I've never, I'll never forget back, and I'm absolutely certain it's in 96 or 97, I can't remember exactly. Our student ministry uh, always have a graduation ceremony for the high school students when they graduated, and um, they invited me, the leaders back then, they said, we want you to come. So I was there, and I was listening to one of the graduates give her testimony. Now, here's the catch. She did not know I was going to be there. And it was wonderful testimony. It was wonderful testimony. Um, in fact, I baptized her as a baby, and I watched her grow up to be a wonderful Christian young lady. But I did not know this part about her testimony. Here's what she said. She said, when I was young and go to church at Christmas Eve, just like you are here today, I go with my parents. I often hear Dr. Yusuf preach about the cross on Christmas Eve. So she went on to say, I would get frustrated, and even some years I would get angry at times with me. 
<laughs> she didn't see me sitting there, loving every minute of it. <laughs> and she would turn to her mom and say, Mom, does he know it's Christmas? <laughs> and then she continued, as I grew up in the, my faith, and faith in Christ was established, she said, I realized that the cross is the very reason for Christmas, that without the cross there's no Christmas. For if it was not for the cross of Jesus Christ, the purpose for which he was born, he would not be born. Now, beloved, that's precisely what Jesus said in this passage I just read to you. The writer to the Hebrews shows us, first of all, he does all the great contrasts. That's why I want you to read it. Take time and read it. Read the entire epistle. He contrasts the Old Testament sacrifice to forgiveness of sins versus the New Testament sacrifice. The animals, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the temporary forgiveness and the permanent forgiveness, the shadow versus the real. And he goes through this contrast. He contrasts between the Old Testament sacrifice. You know, people in the Old Testament, they waited a whole year until the day of Passover when they go over to hand their gifts, to hand their sacrifice, and then the high priest will have to go into the Holy of Holies, offer sacrifices for his own sin first, then sacrifice for the sin of the people. And then he comes out and says, your sins are forgiven. Just think about the next day when you sin. You're going to have to wait 12 months. 12 months in guilt and shame, and carrying that burden of sin. And that is why the writer of Hebrew is contrasting those two. This is a temporary forgiveness at best, but Jesus' forgiveness, the Lamb of God, the sinless, pure Lamb of God, His sin is permanent. And that permanent forgiveness of our sins by the perfect, sinless, eternal Son of God is the only thing that can truly assure us of forgiveness of our sins and guilt and victory over death. It's the only thing. It's the only way. My friend, I want to tell you an absolute truth here. Whether you believe it or not, this is the absolute truth. In fact, if you miss it, you miss everything. You miss all what Christmas is about. Christ Jesus not only had a sense of purpose, at his birth, he also had a sense of knowledge. Uh, it's one thing to have a noble purpose, even though he's the only one who did. But it's another thing to fulfill that noble purpose. You see, lots of people have wonderful purpose in life. Oh, they set dreams and goals and all kinds of stuff. Very few of them fulfill them. But not Jesus. Say that with me. But not Jesus. Can you say it again? but not Jesus. He was born for a purpose. He came with a knowledge of that purpose, and he fulfilled that purpose. Why? Because he was both God and man. God, man, Jesus. And that is why when some people tell you, foolishly tell you, that all the religions are going to lead to God, all the religions are going to lead to the same place. All the religions are going to lead to heaven. Absolutely false. Absolutely false. Why? Because only one man, God, Jesus, who truly saves. 
all the other religion founders, they are dead, 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 and they can't save a fly. Listen to me. As man, Jesus died on that cross. As God, Jesus died to pay the infinite, colossal, necessary price for our salvation. No one else, no one else, say that with me, no one else, no one else could pay the price, only the perfect, sinless Son of God who came from heaven. Now, let me illustrate this, and I, those who know me know that I often say there is no illustration, no matter how close it may get. It's never, never, never good enough to illustrate this divine intervention on God's part to eternally save us. But this is a true story that taken place in Russia during the reign of Tsar Nicholas I. The young man who was enlisted in the army, happened, his father happened to be a friend of the Tsar. And because of that, they gave him a great job, a responsible job. They made him the paymaster for the Russian army. It was his responsibility to ensure that the right amount of money goes to the right soldier every month, every month. But this young man not only was not up to the job, but he was at the grip of addiction to gambling. And he did not only gamble his own money, but as many of you know, if you read enough to know that when you, when you get in the grip of that addiction, you begin to gamble money that doesn't belong to you. And he was beginning to gamble the government money with which he was entrusted to pay the soldiers, money that is not his. In due course, he received a note from the czar that he and his aides are coming in to audit the books. At that moment, this young man knew that he's in deep trouble. He's in deep trouble. So he went through the books, and he began to total the amounts that he gambled away. He began to total them up, and it was huge amounts of money because he was taking it a little bit at a time, but then as he calculated, it was vast amounts. And he looked at this pitiful few rubies, the rubles in his pocket, and, and realized there's nothing in comparison to that huge debt that he owes, to that enormous debt. And if he lived to be, lived 10 lifetimes, 100 lifetimes, he could never pay that debt. As he became so overwhelmed at the enormity of his debt, he knew that his life was ruined. He knew that he would be disgraced and that he had disgraced his family. And so he decided that the only way out is to take his own life. So he brought a revolver and he placed it on his desk, thinking that this is really the way out. And he wrote on the ledger the amount and was sitting right in front of him on the desk and the summation of the amount. And then he wrote at the bottom of that number, such great debt. Who can pay? He wrote those words in large letters at the bottom of that ledger. Such a great debt. 
who could pay. Then he decided that at the stroke of midnight, he's going to take his own life. But then before midnight, he became drowsy and fell asleep. That night, Tsar Nicholas I, as it was his custom, often coming to visit the barracks at night, and he saw the light, so he stopped to see uh, who was in there. And as he looked into this man's uh, office, he immediately recognized him as the son of his friend, and, 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 and he looked over the young man's shoulder to see what had happened and realize what took place and why the revolver was sitting there on the desk. So he was about to wake him up and put him under arrest. At that moment, his eyes fell on the words that the young man wrote. Such a great debt. Who can pay? Who can pay? Suddenly, with a surge of magnanimity, the czar reached out, and he wrote his famous signature on the ledger, and then quietly slipped away. The young man was sleeping fitfully and suddenly woke up and looked at the clock and realized it's past midnight, and, and he was reaching for his revolver, but before he could do that, uh, trying to kill himself, he saw something on that ledger, on that piece of paper that he has not seen before he went to sleep. Under those words, such a great debt, who can pay? There was one word. One word was added that was not there. One word, Nicholas. Nicholas. He was dumbfounded, to say the least. He did not understand how the signature of the czar got there. And then he thought, oh, it's a mistake. Somehow it just came here by mistake. And so he went to the safe and got some official papers that belonged to the Russian uh, government, and he took the official signature of Nicholas I and compared it to the one that's written on his ledger. It's identical. It's the signature of the czar. Then he realized the czar must have come here while I was asleep. He has seen the books. He knows everything. And he forgave me. He forgave me. The young soldier trusted in the words of the czar. And in the early hours of the morning, some messengers came from the palace and brought exactly the same amount of money, exact amount of money that's owed by him. See, only the czar could have paid such a great debt. Nobody else even in Russia could have done it. And the czar did pay. He did pay. As I said earlier, no illustration that's good enough to illustrate such incredible act of God, Jesus Christ coming from heaven on that first Christmas. And He did come from heaven to pay, to pay my debt, a new debt, a new debt, a new debt. He came to pay a debt that we could never have paid. That debt, no one, no one, 
but no one, but no one other than Jesus, the perfect, sinless, virgin-born Son of God, could have done. Now, some people may say, well, Michael, uh, I don't owe anybody anything, especially if you're out of debt, and uh, uh, God bless you, and I'm glad for you. And you say, well, I don't even owe God anything. I mean, no, I don't have any, any debt even to God. What are you talking about? Now, let me tell you, here's the fact of life, okay? I'm sure you've learned the facts of life. I'm going to tell you the, the fact of life. This is the fact of life. Here's what God said from the very beginning. God being perfect, He will not accept anyone. He will not fellowship with anyone. He will have no relationship with anyone. He certainly will never admit anyone who is not perfect into His heaven. There's no way. This is what God said, not what my… Listen, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you this is what the Word of God said. Um, and you know, none of us, certainly not me, I know that, are perfect. There is no chance if we live a million years that we can be… We can be on our knees 24-7. You can go to a monastery and, and, and spend the rest of your life. It has nothing… None of us can ever become perfect. So this is a dilemma, and it's a dilemma that God Himself found the solution for. Only the perfect man, God Jesus, can please the Father. And so Jesus is the one who came from heaven to live a perfect life, a sinless life, so that anyone who hangs onto His coattail will make it to heaven. Anyone who would take hold of Jesus, become acceptable and pleasing to the Father. Anyone surrender to His perfect virgin-born Son, who died on that cross and rose again, will make it to heaven. That's it. This is the fact of life. Again, don't shoot the messenger. I'm only telling you what God said. <laughs> this is the debt. This is the debt that nobody could pay but Jesus. Nobody could pay but who? And that is why on that first Christmas, the Lord Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven. He came to earth and signed His name with, with His own blood so nobody can erase it. Who can pay? Jesus the Christ. Who could pay? Who could pay? Who could pay? Jesus. Now you got it. <laughs> he came to earth and signed His name with His blood at the debt of everyone who will come acknowledging their sin and their inability to save themselves. Only Jesus could save. Such a great debt. Who could pay? Jesus. Only He could pay the debt. Only He could redeem us from the slavery of sin. Only He could save us from the punishment uh, that is rightfully ours. He's the only one who could deliver us from the consequences of our pride and rebellion against God. Only He could deliver us from the smugness and the self-worship that is common in our culture today. And that is why He said to God the Father, sacrifice and offerings he did not desire. As a matter of fact, 
you read the Old Testament. How many times did God say to the people of the Old Testament who think that, well, if I offer a sacrifice, I can wash my hands and now I'm going to live like the devil? <laughs> How many times, starting with Samuel the prophet, telling the King Saul, God is not pleased with sacrifices. You could offer all the animals in the world. It ain't going to cover for your sin. He's not pleased with sacrifices. But a body he prepared for Jesus, his son, his son. I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus came from heaven to fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 40. And the Psalm 40, the way the words, at least, uh, the words read, I am delighted to do your will, O God. If you're anything like me, I must have asked myself a thousand times, did, was Jesus really, not doubting him, but, but did he really delight in leaving the splendor of heaven and the glory of heaven and, and come to our miserable earth? <laughs> was, was he really delighted uh, to uh, part from the fellowship with the Father with whom there were one unity since the beginning of time before before our worlds. Could Jesus really have been delighted to come to our miserable world and sinful world? Could he really be delighted to live as poorest of the poor and the lowest of the low? Could he really be delighted to be born in an animal feeding trough? Could he really be delighted being whipped with lashes until his skin was torn, uh, spat upon, uh, smacked on the face, uh, wore a crown of thorns, and then his hand and, uh, hands and feet nailed to a wooden cross. And for whom? Good people? Wonderful people? Righteous people? No. Evildoers. Evildoers. Was he delighted? Yes. The answer is yes. He said so. He did not do that reluctantly, begrudgingly, or angrily. No. In fact, the Bible said, looking, looking to the future, glorification, back with the Father, he endured the cross. And he did it with joy. So hard for me to comprehend, but he did. He was delighted to do the will of the Father and carry your sentence, your sentence, your sentence, and my sentence on His holy body. My friend, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. No wonder the angels joyfully announced to the shepherd that Savior is born. And the very reason why we are joyful at Christmas and we sing and we celebrate not because of so-called the spirit of Christmas, whatever that is. I never could get this one. I've been trying for years. I won't get it. Whatever the spirit of Christmas is. <laughs> but we are joyful because Jesus joyfully came to our miserable world to save us. Can I get an amen? We are, we are joyful because one, he, of the one who physically came 2,000 years ago from heaven into a womb of a virgin. 
still comes today. Still comes today individually. Individually, He comes to you and 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 me. He comes to us, calling us, inviting us, sometimes maybe pleading with us. Why should you perish? Not only that He came and He comes to us individually through the person of His Holy Spirit convicting us. The Holy Spirit is speaking to so many of you, so many of you watching around the world. I know that. He comes because He knows what our desperate need is. I got news for you. Our desperate need is not good health, and it's not this, and it's not that. Our desperate need, whether we know it or not, is to know that we are being forgiven eternally, that we've been set free from guilt and sin and death. He came to free us from the fear of judgment. He came to give us life, and He give it, gives it to us abundantly. So the question is, have you invited Him to come into your life? Have you invited Him to come into your life? Have you placed your whole trust in Him? For make no mistake about it, the one who came and now comes constantly offering salvation will come again, but this time He will not offer you grace. He'll be the judge sitting on the bench. And so you have a choice. Receive Him as Savior, Lord, and friend now, or face Him at the end as your judge. May no one at the sound of my voice go for another Christmas without inviting the Christ of Christmas to come into his and her life. Boys, girls, see, the Lord does not discriminate. In fact, he loves children. Invite him to come into your life, and you can be sure he will because he keeps his word. Philip Brooks was uh, Episcopal bishop 200 years or so in Boston, He wrote one of the Christmas carols, and in a sense, it's a carol that really nailed it all. But often we sing it, we don't think about it. Listen to it very carefully as I read it. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. It's in the quietness of your seat. You can invite Him to come into your life, and quietly He will come and respond to your invitation, as you respond to His invitation. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts, He grants it to the hearts, the blessings of His heaven. When you receive Jesus, you receive everything. No ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive Him still, the dear Christ enters in. I pray that He will enter many hearts today. It is the longing and the prayer, my prayer, prayer of others, family members, friends, people who know you, people who brought you here today, longing of their hearts that you would respond this Christmas and you don't pass another year. Life is so uncertain. My goodness, the last two years taught us anything, taught us the uncertainty of life, but you can be assured 
of forgiveness here on earth and eternity in heaven. Would you pray with me, please? If you quietly and silently heard the call of God and say, I don't want to go through another Christmas without giving my life to Christ. Receive Him as my Savior and Lord and be assured of eternity with Him and sins, the forgiveness of sins and, etern- and, 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 and release from guilt and pain and suffering of all kinds. I want you to pray this prayer with me in the quietness of your private heart. Father God, I come to you and accept your invitation. And I receive Jesus, your Son, as my Savior and Lord. Forgive me all my sins through him who died to pay for my sentence. Come into my life. Make me new. And give me that peace that doesn't make sense to the world in the middle of suffering. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed this prayer, please tell somebody. Tell somebody. Tell one of the pastors that are going to be down here at the end of the service so we can rejoice with you. God bless you. Let's stand and sing together.